Thank you for listening to the Rivers Church podcast with Pastor Andre and the Rivers team. Be sure to subscribe for a weekly dose of encouragement and inspiration to help your daily life. We pray that this message will help in whatever season of life you might be in. The perfect 10 as we come to land, we're going to look at two of the last commandments, 9 and 10 today. But let me just remind you that even though we're not under God's Uh, um, ceremonial law, we are under his moral law, and God hasn't changed. And the Ten Commandments, less than 300 words in English, are still powerful and important today. You know what I've realized this morning as we were worshiping, is that there is no such thing as sin in the world. Everything that was once considered sin is celebrated today. And we've got to be careful as Christians that we don't celebrate that which God actually hates. And we'll look at that in in a couple of moments. So the Ten Commandments, the perfect ten for a successful society, points us to who God is, what God's values are, and uh, they're the simple truth for living in any age. And if ever we needed to revive them, it is today. They speak about sexual rights, human rights, uh, property rights, and uh, they embrace family rights, personal rights, and they're powerful for today. And remember this, in the New Testament and in the Psalms, they're spoken of as good. Jesus said the commandments are good. And so let's not push them aside as though they're irrelevant, like the God in the Old Testament was a different person. And now in the New Testament, you know, he, we need to understand the covenants and realize Israel was saved by blood, but then they were given the law. We are saved by the blood of Jesus, but then in the New Testament, there's lots of writing on how we ought to live as the church of God. And Paul here, before I just read these last two commandments, I'll skip reading everything today. But he says this in Romans 7 and verse 14. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. All of us have sin in us. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. Anyone relate to that? And then he says, but what I hate to do, that I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. So let's look at the ninth commandment today. And remember, we spoke about the Ten Commandments. Everything starts with who God is. I am the Lord your God. Not any God will do. In today's world, sin, there's no such thing as sin. And any God will do as if you think it's right, it's right. Now he says, I am the Lord your God. There shall be no other God and you shall make images of any other God and you shall worship me only. And when you get God right, then you understand who you're worshiping because you become who you worship. And then we go on and read all the commandments about murder, the sixth commandment, the seventh was adultery, and the eighth was stealing. And the ninth one today, we'll simply read it together. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Most of us say, well, we've never done that, and we hope we don't do it. But interesting word here, this is is the first time in these ten commandments, in nine and ten, where the word neighbor is mentioned, ria or rea, as you say in the uh, Hebrew, rea, which means not, not the person who lives next door to you, but it means anyone you happen to come in contact with. Very important to know that. 
anyone you happen to come in contact with. So if you, if you tell stories about someone who lives in another suburb, you think you're okay? No. Anyone you happen to come in contact with, if you tell for lies about them and bear false testimony, that is incorrect. And the same applies to the following commandment when we look at it in a moment. Colin Smith, in his book on the Ten Commandments, says this. He says, strictly speaking, the Ninth Commandment addresses the issue of perjury that is standing up in court and making an accusation that you know isn't true. Gosh, how many of you when you read News 24 wonder if what you're reading is true? Because so much is said about so many people and so many people's reputations and characters have been damaged. So let's have a look at three things about this commandment and then we can get to the tenth one. Firstly, God hates those who bear false witness. Whenever it talks about the things God loves, we love those, but then the things that God actually hates. And I want to bring your attention to Proverbs chapter 6. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Don't you find that funny? It's like you lost, at the last minute you remembered, oh, there's a seventh one. It's just a poetic way of saying it. And he says, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Why does God hate these things so much? Do you know why? Because it goes against everything uh, in his character, and it goes against who God actually is. And the Bible says God cannot lie. So guess what? His offspring, the church, should not lie either. Now, there's some lies that you can tell. Rab the harlot told a lie. She said, no, the spies weren't here. And God blessed her, and she ended up in the line of the Lord Jesus. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> then when your wife tries on a pair of jeans and says, do I look fat in this? Are you insane to say Yes. You say, no, babe, no, you look lovely. Or, who am I? Ask one of your girlfriends. You see, those aren't, those aren't lie. Lying is actually when you use your mouth and say things that actually end up in the destruction of a person's life. And God does not do that. He does not lie, and he doesn't want his offspring to lie, because the offspring of the devil lie. It's their nature to lie. Now, stay with me, because it's very important for you to understand this when you start telling lies. And I've given you a little bit of permission here, but I'm going to just pull it back in case you go down this road. John chapter 8. For you are, you are the children, sorry, for you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. Watch this. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. How many of you have been confused in the Bible? Why is the devil called the devil and then he's called Satan? Do you know the term devil is actually who Satan is? And it comes from the original language, which implies accuser or slanderer or teller or malicious accuser or teller of lies. That's who Satan is. He is a devil. So when someone is being a devil, they tell telling lies about other people and perjuring and damaging their character. That's why God hates it, because it is not in line with his character, and he doesn't want his children to be the same. 
Think about the fact that slander and perjury caused Jesus to be sent to the cross. Let me remind you, that's why God hates it. So we as Christians should be far from speaking and using our mouths for destructive purposes. Rather speak life. Don't gossip about your neighbor. Don't perjure. Don't damage people's reputation because you dislike them. You dislike their race or their skin color or the way they look or, or, or the, the shape of their eyes. They've got narrow eyes. There. I know those kind of people. My mother used to tell me, watch out for people with thin lips. <laughs> then as I got older, my lips got thinner. Look here. My mother were alive today. She'd say, Mom, have you changed? See, we've got weird ideas. See, Jesus went to the cross because of this, Matthew 26. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Though many false witnesses came forward, finally two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. You can look and look and look. You'll always find someone who is willing to tell lies and break other people down. Don't you do it because God hates it. Number two, the second thing about bearing false witness, it can bring about ruin and death of another. It's almost the same as murder. You, you behave like God because you control the fate of somebody through what you say. And it, the, the crime of being a false witness is a very, very serious crime, and it puts people in prison, damages their reputation, and uh, you'll remember it resulted in the death of Stephen. We don't have time to read it, but research it today, Acts chapter 6. Uh, Stephen was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was a powerful man. He served as a deacon in the church. And then he starts preaching. But false witnesses came forward, and they lied about Stephen. And as a result of that, Stephen was stoned to death. And even as he's dying, he sees heaven, and he sees the throne of the Lord. And he looks up and commends his spirit to God. Here's such a powerful man, such a wonderful man, such a good man, yet perjury ends up sending him to the grave. And we need to be people who don't, who don't behave like that. Ecclesiastes sums it up well. It says in Ecclesiastes 9, one sinner can undo a lot of good. Just one person speaking up can undo a lot of good. In fact, I was reading about a man. His name is Paul Skelnick and uh, married four times and a convicted fraudster was put in prison, but he became what they call a snitch. And he began to tell the police while he was in prison, oh, these guys, oh no, I heard that guy, he, he's, he's in prison here waiting trial for murder. I heard him tell another prisoner that he actually did commit the murder. And as a result, four men went to death row as a result of this man's perjury and bearing false witness. And the reason he did it wasn't because he's a demonic man. He knew that being in prison, he wanted to be in his own cell. He wanted to be protected from other prisoners. And when you were a snitch, you got certain privileges and you got certain benefits. Finally, he actually got let out of prison. His sentence was completely revoked because he had helped put four people on death row. And all the while he had done it, bearing false witness. It's a deadly thing, a terrible thing. And yet today, we just say stuff. We just let stuff come out of our mouths. And we need to be people who are not like that. You know, this man, Stephen, uh, sorry, um, Paul Skelnick, he broke three commandments. He bore false witness. He stole someone's life. And he ultimately murdered them by what he said. And it's like, you know, when you bear false witness, it's like giving someone godlike power. And the Lord says, no, you must watch out what you do with your mouth and what you say about people. In fact, in general, what you say about people. Be careful because someone else hears it.
And then it shapes all their thinking about that person. You know, I've got a very good friend in America by the name of Keith Croft, Keith and Sheila Croft. Most of you would know Pastor Keith, and Sheila's been to speak at the uh, women's conference. Pastor Keith's been here, done men's conference. And you know, I liked him, and I heard about his ministry, but I didn't know him. And a guy who had visited his church, who I know, a friend of mine, said to me, I know Keith Croft's a weird guy. He's an odd guy. I went to his church, and he's got this office at the back. He's got swords and you know, and when I went there, he behaved all weird, and they gave me a gift with my name on it, and, and he actually spoke against the guy, and as a result, I decided not to invite Pastor Keith Croft to speak at our church, but then I happened to be at a conference, and he was invited up between sessions, him and his wife, and they were interviewed, and as they were interviewed, I was like, I like this guy, I like him, I like his wife, I like the spirit this man's got, and I invited him, and they've become family friends some of the best friends we've got in the world. I mean, he's very different to me. He's twice my size. He's got more fast cars than me. And I've got to resist the spirit of covetousness and envy, which I'll talk about later. But it's amazing the damage that can happen when someone else speaks their perspective. I mean, obviously, most of us would, in, would not end up in court. Majority of us would not end up in court. But our mouths are powerful. Third thing here quickly is it determines someone's fate, reputation, and character. And there are numerous examples in the Bible, just to remind you, you remember King Ahab and Jezebel? They wanted Naboth's vineyard. Well, how did they get it eventually? Ahab went home and he sulked. And his wife, wives, be careful what you do. Just be careful. She got false witnesses to say that, that Naboth had actually spoken against uh, the, the king and as a result, him and his sons were stoned, and they took possession of their vineyard. It's amazing what a false witness can do. Damage the reputation of a person, ruined Naboth's life, and his legacy, even putting his child to death. As I wrap up this commandment this morning, as you know, we can't spend too much time on it, but it's pretty obvious. I was reading about Thomas Edward Kennedy, 43 years old, uh, you know, the average looking man uh, from America. And uh, in 2002, he was convicted of raping his 13-year-old daughter and sentenced to 15 years in prison. And he says that he dodged uh, attacks by other prisoners. Obviously, you know, it's, it's weird how people have got, you, know, you can be a criminal, you can murder someone, but if someone rapes someone, then they consider that a worse crime than murder. So they make your life a misery in prison. That's, that's, uh, that's how it works when you don't have the Ten Commandments. Your law and your, your concept of values is distorted. Anyway, he ended up in prison. And um, his daughter, after he had served 10 years in prison, his daughter bumped into his mother, his grandmother, and she had been to rehab, and now she was clean, and she said to her grandmother, you know, when I spoke and I accused my father of rape, it wasn't true, but I didn't know what to do about it. But now that I'm clean and I've come out of rehab, I want to say I'm sorry. Anyway, she ended up in court. She ended up testifying that it wasn't true. And her father's life was made a misery. His reputation's been destroyed. Guess what? When people see him, I wonder. Even though she admits she had lied, perjury can wreck a person's reputation, wreck their lives. Let's be people who always tell the truth. Let's put the truth first. Let's be like God who cannot lie. Let's not be like the devil. And let's always use our mouths to build and to speak life. Can you say amen? Amen.
Let's look at the 10th commandment now. And this is a very important one because it leads to others. It leads to stealing. It leads to adultery. It leads to murder. And especially in South Africa. Exodus 20 and verse 17. And we need to understand this commandment correctly. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Again, not the person next door, but someone in your vicinity. Uh, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey. I suppose the ox could be the Mercedes-Benz, the donkey could be the BMW. <laughs> Just, you know, trying to make the scripture real today. Or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You see, what this looks like is materialism. If you see someone with a nice pair of jeans, don't you dare say, gee, I'm going to get a pair of jeans like that, because that's covetousness. That's not what it's saying. It's saying this, how, how can he afford to buy jeans like that? How can they have a BMW and I have to drive a Toyota? It's wanting ill will. That's why covetousness and envy are cousins. And they are closely related. How many of you know God wants you to have material possessions and he wants you to own personal property? He doesn't want you to look at something and say, gee, I'd like to have a house, but I can't look at my neighbor's house because that would be covetous. No, there is a godly contentment, and then there's also a godly discontent. One that wants to aspire, educate myself, build my business, look after my family, but not with ill will towards my neighbor. The whole of the world is gripped by covetousness and envy. People want stuff, and they resent others who have it. And that is the 10th commandment. Now, we've got to understand that God wants us to aspire, to trust him, and not have ill will to those who have much more than us. Are you, are you with me? Robert Barron, he's the assistant bishop of the Diocese of Los Angeles, and he said envy is a capital sin. It refers to the sadness at the sight of another's goods and the immoderate desire to acquire them for oneself even unjustly. The word covet in the Hebrew is shamat, which means to desire or to lust after someone's possessions. See, it's not wrong to say, gee, man, that's a nice car. I, I'd like one of those. Because it's not one parked next door to you. Remember that. It's one driving down the road. How many of you drive down the road and you, that's a nice car. Gee, that's a seven-seater or whatever it is, or it's a coupe or whatever. You know, I, I'd read, I, you know, when I sell this car... I'd like to, that's not wrong. But it's when you look at, oh, yeah. Mm, I wonder why they've got it. And then we speak ill, and we wish them ill, and we desire goods. That's covetousness. That's why envy and covetousness, they're very close cousins. They married to each other, in fact. Let me explain to you like this. James chapter 4 and verse 2. You desire, that's the word last year, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. Gosh, you see, if you want something, it's okay, but if you, how do you kill? Gosh, he says, you covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. See, this is not just ambition. This is a terrible thing. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. The definition here by philosopher Immanuel Kant of covetousness and envy is a propensity to view the well-being of others with distress. So when someone else advances, you view it with distress. And here's what people think, you see. We think wealth is a pie. 
When you've got a big piece, mine's smaller. Don't get distressed at other people's wealth. Be encouraged by the fact that wealth is available. If a person can become a billionaire in South Africa, it means you could possibly do it too if you're in business. Man, the possibility exists. But what do we do? I wonder how they got it. You've probably got connections in government, and that often is true. But, <laughs> but we mustn't do that. We need to say, God, if you can do it for him, you could do it for me. If that person's been promoted and blessed, and the so-and-so grew up where I grew up, and look how they've moved forward, I'm going to trust you too. But no, we attack everybody, and then we rely on political systems to give us what we want, and then when they don't give it to us because they can't give it to us, then we're upset. And then what do we do? We spend our time speaking ill, bearing false witness, being angry, instead of, like James says, ask God. Am I making sense today? This is a massive problem in our world. And I've spoken on this a number of times. In the book that was written by a German man called Helmut Schrenk, uh, Schunk, sorry, he says, uh, it, the book's called Envy, A Theory of Social Behavior. He says, this feeling of hostility, spite, and ill will to feel displeasure and ill will at the superiority of another person in happiness, success, reputation, or the possession of anything desirable. I believe we've got to guard against this because this is why people get into debt. They are so driven by what other people have got and that other people seem to be ahead of them that they will get into debt to get there. And then guess what? You're even more miserable. Always remember when you buy a car, it's like a marriage. In fact, some cars, you pay them off longer than a marriage. Most people's marriage don't last 72 months anymore. I remember when 60 months was a lot for a car. Gee, five years, now it's 72 months. You married to that thing, baby. Try and get divorced from it. It ain't so easy. You can go into court and you can claim irreconcilable differences and they will let you loose from your marriage. But from that BMW, you are married. It's as though you've got a ring on your finger that says BMW. <laughs> Listen to me, I'm giving you wisdom here. So before you get into covetousness and you want something, make sure you can afford it because with it can come such unhappiness and bitterness that others have more than you and are getting ahead. Let me give you four things about covetousness. Coveting and envy are evil traits disguised as good ones. Hear me today. People call these things good today, but they're actually evil traits. And we can see from the 10th commandment here that this strong desire and this feeling of ill will towards others' possessions is not a good quality. And people talk about the moral indignation. Have you heard that term? I'm morally indignant at people that can be so much wealth and so much poverty. How can you live in Santon when there are townships nearby? All that sort of stuff. Now, it's terrible that people live in poverty. And by the way, let me just say this in case you get me wrong. The Rivers Foundation and through us personally, we do a lot of good for a lot of people constantly. But don't try and be so self-righteous. I love what this man said, and I want to quote it to you today. Uh, Vittorio De Sico, he's a... Uh, the Italian director and actor, he said this, he said, moral indignation in most cases is 2% moral, 48% indignation, and 50% envy. If you could just absorb that for a moment. That feeling of, gee, there's such inequality. He says, actually, it's 50% envy. In fact, Eric Fromm, in his book, Man for Himself, says there's perhaps no phenomenon which contains so much destructive feeling as moral indignation. 
which permits envy or hate to be acted out under the guise of virtue. You see, we talk about inequality, but often when you talk about inequality, what's at its root is envy and coveting. How can they have so much and I can have so little? And it's what most social justice warriors do today. And I want to just paint this picture again, because if you heard me speak about this, I'm so tired of seeing this on the internet, but Thomas Sowell, who I usually respect and has written some fantastic books, he's getting on in age now, he wrote a book called The Quest for Cosmic Justice. He says, envy was once considered to be one of the seven deadly sins before it became one of the most advised virtues under its new name, social justice. If you cannot achieve equality of performance among people born to the same parents and raised under the same roof, how realistic is to expect to achieve it across broader and deeper social divisions? You see, it's not that others have it. It's that others have it and I don't. Can you be content to see others go ahead when you can't? You've got to learn how to do it. I get into my Mercedes-Benz that is a 2013 model that is paid for. And I drive behind brand new ones that I've read about in the car magazine. And I am totally content. Because it cost me nothing. As they say in Spanish, nada. And that feeling is a great feeling. Because I don't have to have the latest. Now if you can afford it and you're not in debt, God bless you. There's some of you in the church, you, you do that and, and that's fine. But I'm able, I've learned that I don't have to have everything everyone else has. And that there's a contentment, yet I'm a person who wants to aspire. I want our church to be larger. I want us to reach more people. But it's not because I want to keep up with someone else because I'm angry that their church is bigger or because he's got a better car than me. You've got to learn that envy will take root in your life no matter what you've got, rich or poor. And it's under the guise of being a good quality. Did you know that people even covet and envy Rivers Church. I've been told that by a number of people, and they speak ill against us because of it. And I just say, we're in good company, because they did that to Moses and Aaron. And it says in, in, in Psalm 106, in the camp, they grew envious of Moses and Aaron, who was consecrated to the Lord. Well, there we go. If I'm in company with Moses and Aaron, envy all you like. Number two, the second thing about coveting and envy. Coveting and envy try to make everyone equal. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. said this. He said, I have no respect for the passion of equality, which seems to me merely idolizing envy. In the book Envy by Helmut Schuch, he says, to claim humanitarian motives when the motive is envy and its supposed appeasement is a favorite rhetorical device of politicians. Politicians talk about envy or uh, about equality all the time because they want to win people who've got nothing. And they promise them that you can have what they have because actually what they have, they have unjustly. Now in South Africa, we've got a challenge with it because we've had apartheid and we have had unfair systems. But if you keep going down that road, you're going to be a very miserable person until you go to the grave because I've discovered there's no country in the world that can make people equal even though they say they can. And in the great United States of America where they have all the wealth in the world, they can't get it right. So I suggest you follow the Bible, you learn contentment, and you trust God to have your needs met. And you don't call envy and covetousness something good. And you don't believe that equality is something that we can ever achieve. 
And all the political systems in the world will tell you they can, but they can't. You may know Ben Shapiro. He said this. He said, socialism violates at least three of the Ten Commandments. It turns government into God. It legalizes thievery. And it elevates covetousness. Discussions of income inequality, after all, aren't about prosperity, but about petty spite. Why should you care how much money I make, so long as you are happy? See, covetousness is not about the other person. It's actually about you, what's going on in here. And that's what's the last commandment. All the others deal with everything, and then God comes to us, and he says, what about you? Hmm? Winston Churchill said, socialism is a philosophy of failure, the creed of ignorance, and the gospel of envy. Its inherent virtue is the equal sharing of misery. You see, we will never be able to be equal. In fact, in reading about this, I discovered something interesting. Helmut Schuck, one of the authors, he says this. He says, we, we will get to a place where if you live in a block of flats, and the block of flats is rented, the people downstairs well, after two years, need to be moved upstairs because the people upstairs have a better view than the people downstairs, and that's not fair. It's insane. We've got to learn contentment. We've got to learn that some people are better off than us and always will be, and we need to deal with our hearts and not be miserable. If you're making notes, write this down. Equality is different to equity. Equity is what you have. Equality is your rights as a human being in the law. And we've tried to put the two together. They don't mean the same thing. In the Bible, there is no equity equality. There's only equality of human beings before. There's no male nor female, no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We're all one in Christ. Equality. But when it comes to equity, the Lord gave one five talents and he gave another two talents and he gave another one talent. And when the five-talent man made five more, he didn't say, shame on you. Don't you realize how poor people are? We're going to tax you. Four of those five. Now he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Here's some more. The world is so driven by covetousness and envy that we've made these things virtues when the Bible says you mustn't do them. Am I making sense today? And you've heard me say this before, you know, we talk about businesses. It's wonderful when people start a business because the government says, we're trying to create jobs, we're trying to create jobs. So when you start a business, well done. But God help you if that business gets big. Because now suddenly you must give back. But didn't I give jobs? Didn't I provide a service? Didn't I put branches everywhere so that you could go to them? Like McDonald's or like Builders Warehouse or like Starbucks Coffee? Now you can just go down the road and there's a Mr. Price and you can go down the road and there's a Woolworths. But now because they're making so much money, they must give back as though they stole it. Why? Because we make inequality a massive thing when actually it boils down to covetousness in the heart and envy. Listen to me today. This stuff will make you miserable, make you unhappy, and it is not biblical. Quickly, number three, coveting and envy produce hate and spite. James tells us this here in James chapter 3. He says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, not good ambition, selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. When you have envy and covetousness lurking in your heart and you don't trust God and believe for your progress, you will end up with hate and spite in your heart. John Christotum, who was the Archbishop of Constantinople, said this 
He said, as a moth gnaws a garment, so doth envy consume a person. And Dennis Waitley, the motivational uh, author, uh, his uh, famous book, The Psychology of Winning, he says, the price of success is to bear the criticism of envy. If you're going to be successful, prepare for people to want what you want and to envy you and to say bad things about you. But listen, it's a Philistine trait, not a Christian trait. Do you remember when Isaac prospered and he was blessed and he planted crops and he reaped a hundredfold? Do you remember that passage in Genesis 26? And it says the man, his wealth increased and he grew very rich. And then the, the Bible says immediately after it, and the Philistines envied him. But they didn't just envy him. They took soil and they filled in the wells that his father had dug. Surely those wells would have fed and, uh, sorry, watered their cattle. But spite does that. It, it not only hates seeing God prosper you, but it wants to damage what God has given you. All in the name of social justice and equality. You need to think like a Christian, not a heathen and not a Philistine. Be careful that your theology does not come from social media. Lawrence Reed wrote a very good book called Was Jesus a Socialist? And I encourage Christians to read it. He says, Jesus never endorsed the forced redistribution of wealth. That idea is rooted in envy. And you need to realize that most people who are not Christians live with raging envy. Not just, you know, they say you've got a green eye. No, no, it's raging envy. Remember what Titus tells us about who we were before we got saved. Titus 3 and verse 3, are you all still with me? He, he says, once we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts or desires and pleasures. Now he describes it. He says our lives were full of envy, uh, sorry, evil and envy, and we hated each other. Can you see how envy produces hate and spite? In fact, it's, it's, it's amazing when you, when you try and track why certain things happen in the world, why certain crimes were committed, you find often it tracks back to covetousness and envy. How many of you remember the school shooting, the Columbine massacre? One of the most famous school shootings. There's been many since then. 13 kids were killed and 20 were injured. And the two boys, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, if you actually see their faces and the kind of pictures they posted, most people say, oh, they were possessed by the devil. It was, it was the devil in them. No, 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 no. Dylan Klebold said this in his diary. I see jocks having fun, friends, women. I hated the happiness that they, the jocks, have. So he looked at athletes, that jocks they called, and he saw how they were enjoying themselves. They had women and they had friends, and he hated them and was spiteful, which resulted in picking up a gun and killing them. They didn't sit at home playing Uji boards and calling on Satan, Lord and Master, and then come out. Envy drove spite and hatred, and a lot of what you see in the world is driven by spite and hatred, rooted in envy and covetousness. You can clap now. You see, some people's success make others feel inferior. And it's an inside job that you've got to deal with. Number four, let me finish off here. Covetous and envy damages our hearts. And that's why it's the 10th commandment. It'll damage you on the inside and then end up damaging your relationship with God and your relationship with others. Proverbs 14 and verse 30, as we begin to move to a close here, 
Solomon says, a heart at peace gives life to the body. Notice this is a heart issue. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Doesn't just make you red-faced or annoyed. It actually gets right into the core of your being and damages you physically. This is not just poetic wording here. This is truth. If you let this get root in you, you will be a miserable person. Haven't you wondered why some people just on social media all the time, all the time, are always attacking everybody? Why people on the street with placards tax the hell out of the rich? Envy. How come I don't do that? How come you don't do it? It's because we're not driven by envy. We have ambition, godly ambition. And we know God wants to bless us, so our eyes are on Him. And we get disappointed in the systems of this world, but we don't live like Philistines. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. And we trust God. And we live and we prosper. And then others envy us. In his book, Envy, by Helmut Schuch, I want to uh, come to a close with this. He says, as these envious people look around them, they become aware of innumerable other inequalities to which they react with envy and which they would therefore like to see eliminated. It becomes increasingly difficult to persuade them that they and they alone must endeavor to solve their problem of envy, that no one is duty-bound to provide them with a society in which there will be no occasion for envy, quite aside from the fact that such a society would be impossible. We're trying to create a world that is impossible according to God, and God knew it all the way back when he gave the commandments to Moses, and he said, you need to know how to relate to me, those above you, me, your parents, then you need to know how to relate those alongside you, then you need to know how to relate, relate to yourself, because if you don't relate to yourself correctly and to God correctly, you'll be a miserable person and at enmity with the people around you. God's made us all with different giftings, different abilities, and you better get used to it. When I go to the doctor and he says, you need an operation, I don't say to him, how much are you going to charge me? 20,000 rand? That's unfair. I tell him, operate. Operate. And then when the bill comes, <laughs> but I'm well and I'm happy. Why? Because he can do what I can't do. I can't go home and say, babe, draw the curtains. <laughs> I, think, I think this might be it. No, I pay him because he has superior knowledge and I don't covet or resent him. And when I see him on the weekend with his Porsche in Morningside, I go, there goes my doctor. <laughs> what is wrong with us? Jesus had 12 disciples. He chose three of them. One was the leader and the other two were close to him. He took them up the mountain and he left the nine behind. And I reckon they didn't sit there saying, let's just pray for those guys. As they go on that retreat, let's just pray God's blessing on them. They probably sat in there. So who's number four? That's the nature of the beast. And the quicker we get used to the fact that we're not all equal, but God has given us gifts. And by the way, no matter how small your gift, you can double it. Because the man with five doubled it. The man with two doubled it. The happier we'll be and the more we'll be fulfilling God's commands for a better society. Less than 300 words in English, but aren't they profound? 
Let's live by them. Let's not reject them. Let's realize that we can't find righteousness through them. We only find that through Christ. But by obeying God's law and living according to it, we bring about a just society and a harmonious world. I'm going to hand over to Pastor Chris in Kailami to pray with you. Now, if you're online with me, stay with me now and stay with me in the room. How many of you have been enjoying the word? You received something today? In fact, you know, truth be told, I'm sorry it's come to an end. <laughs> I wish there were another five, but 10 is enough. <laughs> and maybe sometime we'll do the seven deadly sins. Uh, it's been, you know, 14 or 15 years ago since I preached on the Ten Commandments, but I think it's been valuable. And before we go today, I want to pray with you. We've got a couple of moments. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. Uh, all across the room and at home. If you could just bow your head with me. I want to give you an opportunity today to make Jesus the Lord of your life. And if you're a Christian, to put God first. Because the Ten Commandments start with our relationship with God. And he says this, I'm the Lord, your God. You know, that word, uh, the Jews say Yahweh. It's the name of God. It's not just any old God. It's not any God that you create in your head. Not any God that you read about in a book. It's the God of the Bible who says, I am the Lord your God. And it's him who sent his son Jesus to die for our sins that we could have a relationship with him. And today that God, that Yahweh, that Lord who gave us the Ten Commandments and who gave us his son is calling us into a relationship with him. And you know what? When you're in a relationship with Jesus, your sins are forgiven. You have peace with God. You know you have eternal life. But then you begin to live like a Christian. You begin to live like a child of God. You begin to walk in the Word of God. And, you know, it's amazing. Your problems don't go, but a harmony comes into your life. A peace comes into your life that you can't have apart from Christ. In fact, when you're apart from Christ, envy rages in you and hatred rages in you. But it's all under the guise of noble, noble things. Let's have real peace with God today. If you're a Christian... Maybe today you need to recommit yourself to the Lord. And you know what? It's a wonderful thing to do. I do it frequently. I bring my life to the Lord and I say, Lord, take me again. Do something new in me. I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I pray in my study for God's presence and his power and his spirit to fill me anew. I've been saved for years, but I need to do that. And many of you in the room and online need to do it. Say if today you're in the room, you say, I need to recommit. Or I need to give my life to Jesus for the first time. I'm going to pray with you, and I'm going to pray with you at home, online. What I want you to do, and you can do this at home too, is all across the room, not going to make you stand up, not going to call you to the front, simply going to pray. Raise your hand. Say, that's me today. Would you pray with me? Yes, 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 yes. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Many hands downstairs. Yes, thank you. Online. Raise your hand in your lounge if you have to, at the kitchen table, in your bedroom, wherever you find yourself. Raise your hand. Thank you under the balcony. Up in the balcony, I can see you. Yes, thank you. Thank you. That's great. We're coming to the Lord God today, and we're believing for Him to be first, and when He's first in your life, everything else flows and takes its rightful place. You can put your hands down. What we're going to do is we're going to pray out loud. All of us, can we do that, church? Let's be supportive, and with our masks, let's really pray out loud. Come now. Let's pray like this. Thank you, Father that you are the Lord and you sent your only son, Jesus Christ, to die for my sins. I thank you for him today and commit my life to him that he might be my Lord and Savior. Lord Jesus, take my life. 
be my Lord and lead me today. Free me from sin and give me a fresh start. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We hope you have been blessed and inspired by this message. 